0: Coming up on Venture Voice. The way you make a comedy writer is you take a kid and you fuck him up just enough so he's almost a serial killer, then you pull your punch a little bit. I'm glad, let me put it this way, I'm glad that some people now are going to festive parties and having a good time. That's a good thing. (laughs) Just step in the right direction. This is Greg Gallant. Welcome to
1: Venture Voice. Happy holidays. I'm excited to bring you a special holiday edition of the podcast. Actually... Not just any holiday, this is a Festivus edition of Venture Voice. Now, many people know Festivus from Seinfeld. It was featured in the Hit TV series in the episode The Strike. The premise, and and go look it up on YouTube, you can find all the clips there, but basically the premise is that George's dad, Frank Costanza, who's played by the legendary Jerry Stiller, invented a holiday called Festivus, a Festivus for the rest of us, that featured airing of grievances, feats of strength. When I was growing up, I loved that show so much. I even did a, a celebration in college with some friends and then did a, uh, a couple of Festivus celebrations at my apartment. I always felt it was hilarious. But it turns out, Seinfeld did not invent Festivus. In fact, it was invented all the way back in 1966, I guess still pretty young as far as holiday traditions go, but it was invented by a writer named Daniel O'Keefe. He celebrated it with his family, and it wasn't famous. It was just something that he and his family did. No one else knew about it. it was done for decades. And then his son, Dan O'Keefe, ended up becoming a TV writer, And he ended up becoming a writer on Seinfeld. As you'll soon hear, Dan's my guest today. I tracked him down. He didn't want to make this into a show. He wanted to repress this childhood memory. But the crew on Seinfeld found out, and they insisted he write it into a show. So he wrote it, didn't think anything of it, and it became one of the most famous Seinfeld episodes ever and is, of course, something still remembered to this day. This was a real treat for me. I loved Seinfeld. I I watched the show religiously growing up. And one great honor of my life was in the award show I produced, the Shorty Awards. I got to meet Jerry Steller. He and his wife, Ann Mira, she was also a legendary comic. Both came one year to present a category. And oh man, what a funny and talented actor and comedian. As a bonus, it turns out Dan O'Keefe ended up working on the show... Silicon Valley, the hit HBO show, parodying Silicon Valley, I love that show too. I found Silicon Valley was so realistic, I got a lot of stress watching it because it reminded me of my own day job building a software company with Muckrack, the software company that I run. But they really hit what it's like in Silicon Valley, the place on the head. Even though I'm based in New York, I spend a lot of time out there. So I got to talk to Dan about the research process which entrepreneurs he interviewed to, uh, to figure out how to write that show. And, uh, oh man, this ended up being a blast on two levels. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I do. You'll have a religious moment learning about Festivus and then a new insight into how the show Silicon Valley was made. Enjoy. Hey. Dan, welcome to Venture Voice. Thank you. Thanks for having me yeah, appreciate you coming on. I'm so excited to learn about festivus. i've been uh, a fan ever since I saw the episode, and I've even done a couple of festivus parties with friends before It's a fun way to celebrate. So I want to hear all about how it started. A lot of people think it's totally made up, and I mean, of course, it's made up, but not for Seinfeld. I understand your father came up with it. I'd love to hear the story about how uh, Daniel keeps senior you know what led to the very first festivus.
0: It was originally. A word that he coined in the sense that, you know, it was used, a proper noun indicating a holiday. And it was designed originally to commemorate his first date with my mom, I believe the story goes. And then it sort of metastasized into this weird thing he celebrated with his family through the seventies and eighties. And his personal quirks of being a overeducated alcoholic from a very working class background who was out of his mind and obsessed with Samuel Beckett led to have some, the actual original holiday, to have some very odd quirks like using an ancient cassette recorder he had liberated from the Reader's Digest where he worked to tape record all of us talking about the previous year and then playing them the next year and then playing the tapes of us listening to it, as in the play Craps Last Tape was a feature of it. It was very, it seemed normal to me at the time because I, as long as I can remember, there was, we had Christmas, you know, there's a misconception that it somehow re- replaced Christmas. No, we celebrated. We were culturally Christian, I guess you'd say. We celebrated Thanksgiving and, and Christmas and whatnot. But also this weird holiday, which didn't have a set date, unlike on the show. It could happen sort of any time. We would get off the school bus and there would be, it would have been all set up. The house would be darkened and very odd music would be playing. And I've told the story many times, but he, um, the two decorations, main decorations for Festivus were an old alarm clock placed in a bag, which was then nailed to the wall. Now, the nail stayed there and he ended up just hanging the bag. I don't know what that means. That was a symbol of the holiday. But when I asked him, he told me that I wasn't allowed to know that, which is very alarming to say the least. I can only speculate. Uh, or Actually, I don't want to. And the other one was a sign that says, fuck fascism, which is uh, perhaps more apropos than ever right now, which would go up on the mantelpiece. That didn't make it into the show, obviously. And it was just very odd. And I learned at a young age that you didn't talk about it outside of school because people thought me and my brothers were weird enough as it was. So it became just sort of this shame that we kept, there was a tacit agreement never to talk about it with anyone else. And even, even as we went off to college, we sort of informally decided, let's just never mention this again, to the point where I had literally forgotten about it. When my younger brother opened his mouth at a party and mentioned in front, you know, near the Seinfeld head writers, Schaefer, Bergen, Mandel, this strange holiday. And and then they uh, invited me to meet them at this diner in Hollywood, and they made it so that they were trapping me in this booth. And they began peppering me with questions about it. And I was sort of embarrassed, but I explained it. And then they said, well, we think we, it should be part of an episode. And I tried to dissuade them from this. It seemed like a terrible idea. It was just embarrassing to me and seemed insane and not in a, in a good, quirky TV way, but in like a sad, creepy, dysfunctional way. And uh, they said, well, look, Jerry thinks it's a really funny idea and wants to do it. And it can either be in your episode or in someone else's. And I figured if this disgrace tied to my DNA had to be televised, I might as well at least get a script fee out of it. So um, the episode was called The Strike. And it was co-written by myself and Alec Berg and Jeff Schaefer. I held out hope that because there were so many different moving parts of that episode, there were actually five plots, not four that the Festivus one would be left on the cutting room floor and just be edited out. No such luck. Somehow it managed to stay in there and sort of tie the other plots together. And I did not think the episode would go over well. This was 1990, late 97. So we would get on these primitive bulletin boards after the show aired on the gigantic computers they had at CBS Radford a lot and, and look at people you know, posting quick capsule reactions. And people seemed to be kind of confused by it, and I had gotten off lightly. And the fact that, I mean, I was a tiny little footnote on that show. I had a freelance season eight, and then I was on staff season nine. I wrote a few episodes. I had my my name on a few episodes, but I was just the most insignificant part of that. So you weren't a staff writer at this time. You were kind of
1: a freelancer for Seinfeld.
0: No, no, no. You misunderstand me. The Festus episode aired season nine. Season nine, I was a story editor and then an executive story editor. I was a low-level writer. Season eight, previously, I had written as a freelance, an episode called the pothole which i ended up sharing credit with with steve o'donnell former head writer for the david letterman show and be, i guess because that seemed to work well they i was then lucky enough unbelievably lucky enough to get hired as a full-time writer for season nine but that was my only i only worked there for basically at most you could say two years and had you know that show is a landmark but and i had virtually nothing to do with it but somehow this ridiculous episode has gotten traction and people it's almost offensive to me that when people think of Seinfeld, that's one of the first words that spring to their minds. Like I I don't deserve that. That's not earned by me. That is this thing that my dad made up that I was, that got sucked into the show against my better judgment. That's what people are talking about in, you know, instead of the dinner party or the Chinese restaurant, I know they talk about the Chinese restaurant, but no one talks about the dinner party, which is a great episode. It's a source of embarrassment for a variety of reasons because of that, because it still bemuses me that people find it so fascinating and it's, Greatest sitcom of all time. There's a lot of things to fetishize about it. I don't really see why this is one of them, but you know, have at it, folks. I have a lot more
1: questions about the Seinfeld process, but first, it's going back to your childhood. Do we have to? I think I may have a breakthrough at some point. It, it, um, there might be crying. We'll get to that soon. That's what this podcast is all about. So you were saying it's a floating holiday, but would you have advanced notice of which night it was, or would it just, you'd get off the bus and that's when you found out it was surprise Festivus.
0: we we woken up in the middle of the night. It could happen any time of day, any day. Just that shit got weird all of a sudden. And it was like, oh. I mean, every once in a while, my, da- my dad would tease us by saying, you know, it's starting to look a lot like Festivus. And that could mean it could be in an hour, but it could also be in like a month. Not only did it not have any set time, one year we didn't have one. One year we had two. The rules of logic did not apply. It bent time and space around it.
1: What do you think drove your father to do it? I mean, was it, do you think that he thought it'd be developmental for you and your siblings or did he just think it'd be a fun (laughs) thing to do
0: or? (laughs) No, I don't think that. I think that, I mean, ostensibly his cover story was that he wanted a holiday. He had initially intended to become a, a Jesuit priest and had become disillusioned and left the Catholic church. So he wanted a, a religion that did, was not the celebration of a dead guy's birthday that was not inherently religious or commercial. So he made it up. But you know, I think it actually it stems largely from mental illness and a love of Samuel Beckett, which have a, you know, with that Venn diagram, there's some overlap there. He wanted to invent a holiday. He felt like it. He had a captive audience. It was cathartic for him, I think. It was mostly us sitting around. We had a dinner that was even more peculiar than usual with strange symbols on the walls and like weird. There was this record he played over and over again, which was this Italian novelty pop music from the late 40s. And it was of like, a, essentially, it was Alvin and the Chipmunks. It was this grown man. And you heard these like strange, distorted voices, which were meant to be, I don't know, maybe they were supposed to be Chipmunks or maybe they were supposed to be, I don't know. I have no idea what it was supposed to be. But it sounded very much like an Italian version of Alvin and the Chipmunks, where Alvin was yelling at the Chipmunks. It was like carny music. It was just super creepy. But then also, it wasn't as bad as the, the Irish Republican Army terrorist. Ballads that were also being played, which had these lovely melodies, but the lyrics were all like, but the bullets tore his flesh in two, yet he cried with voice so sure, revenge. I mean, it, horrible stuff. And it's just very strange music, very strange practices.
1: Looking back at your childhood, how, how do you compare your memories of Festivus to Christmas, Thanksgiving? Do you look back at it more fondly or less fondly than, let's say,
0: Festivus first Christmas? Uh, what's the Greek definition of catharsis, inducing terror and pity? There was certainly weird stuff that went down at the other holidays, but that was the, the locus of the majority of the weirdness often seemed to gravitate towards the festivist holiday in my house. How do I look back on it? With a mixture of confusion, resentment, relief that I no longer celebrate it, uh, just amazement that it ever happened, gratitude for the occasional residual check that still trickles in after many years for 11 cents or so. It's a complicated uh, legacy to this strange pop-cultural sub-footnote of the late 90s. What was the last festivist that you'd celebrated with your own family? Known as the Secret Festivus. So I was home from college for the summer. New York was like 90 degrees. And my father was following me and my brothers around, like asking us questions about how the year had gone. He was wearing a gigantic moth-eaten overcoat, like a flasher in a cartoon. And it became clear that from the types of questions being asked that he had somehow hung the tape recorder on a makeshift rig inside the jacket. And he was taping us, trying to do Festivus without us knowing it. Because by that point, we had said, we are not doing that anymore. So that was uh, the hidden Festivus or the secret Festivus, my brothers occasionally called it. I don't know if you ever spliced that together. I just remember that I think I just left the house and just walked downtown to get away from it, I think. Are you still in possession of the tapes? I may. That's possible. This could be a great podcast series. Do you really want to hear an eight-year-old me crying? It's not uplifting or amusing, really. Uh, yes, they are held at a secure location. They exist. They were uh, remastered to CD, and apparently, the my mom had it done. She said the guy who had remastered, who you know, switched them over. This was ten years ago or more from these ancient cassettes. Was weirded out because he did to listen to them while it was happening. So my understanding is
1: the I just googled uh, Festivus right before he got on. I saw Google even puts a poll on the left side of Google when you Google a but I understand the pessimist pole and the feats of strength, those were inventions for the show. The Festivus
0: pole was a joke that Jeff Schaefer made. We're talking about how to construct the holiday scene. And I talked about what, what actually happened. And I think Berg said, we can't do that. That's horrifying. We need to, to make it sort of funny. And Jeff suggested a pole instead of a, a tree and that survived. I suggested the feats of strength there was generally not violence that broke out at these things for the most part. There was a little brother on brother violence, but the pizza strength was a joke I pitched, not thinking you would get in the idea of wrestling your father. I mean, certainly that was in our minds is at any point, this man could leap on us and we'd have to, you know, defend ourselves. Yeah. That was a joke I came up with. What was the third one? There was a poll. There was pizza strength. And, uh, Oh, there in your grievances, that was another joke of mine, which was actually real because a lot of the original holiday was, complaining about, it was talking about the year, it was a celebration of the year, but mostly it was talking about how terrible the year was. And every festival had a theme and the names of them were extraordinarily depressing. One of them was, is there light at the end of a tunnel? One is too easily made glad, question mark. That was after like a year that my dad wasn't too miserable, but he didn't trust it. He was like, well, hold on. Should I be more uh, upset about this year? One of them was, daddy's on a treadmill. I guess he felt he was uh, not being promoted at the Reader's Digest fast enough for his liking. What was the question again? (laughs) What's real, what's made up, but the airing of grievances is real. Oh, it was all too real. A large percentage of the actual original holiday was him airing grievances, and then us, my two brothers and my mother being urged to air our grievances into a tape recorder, into him. The show, the meal was, I think, a meatloaf. In reality, it was like it was a ham or a turkey or something nice. So it was like a nice celebratory holiday food experience. It was, you know, adorned with a lot of very peculiar ornamentation.
1: And the cassette player, that also made it into the show, right? That scene where
0: uh, Frank Costanza plays the tape for George. Oh, I had forgotten that. Yeah, that was, um, I think that was Dave Mandel's idea, is that he confronts him in the diner and you hear that, And my glasses, you don't need glasses, you're weak and all. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that came out of the fact that I mentioned that dirty old tape recorder that still had the sticker, Property of the Reader's Digest, on it, that he was always waving around. Yes, that's where that came from. And now if I
1: understand right, it sounds like you were saying you didn't even pitch the idea to the Seinfeld writers.
0: It was your brother who'd mentioned it offhand. No, my brother broke the omerta and got out, and then people got interested in it. God knows why. And then I you know, registered my objections, but uh, figured if anyone you know, is going to profit off of my father's misfiring neurons, it might as well be me. So, so now, I've never worked on a
1: sitcom, but it's my understanding that like, even if you get a writing job on a sitcom, it can still be very competitive to get your story ideas in. So like, how weird was it to be in this position where the other writers are fighting to get their ideas in and here you are trying to avoid getting your idea in or at least this
0: piece of your life in it? In sitcoms as a whole, yes, it can be extraordinarily cutthroat and competitive within a room. The rooms have changed a lot since then. That was 1997. And the show was extraordinarily well run. So in fact, it wasn't a war of all against all. And you would come up with ideas in your office, then you would go in and pitch ideas in front of Jerry and everyone. And the ones that were generally liked, once you had a certain critical mass, you would say, okay, go off and outline those, beat them out, you bring me back a whiteboard. It wasn't a a room written show where everything where there's just one big room with everyone in it all the time and people just shout stuff and the you know the loudest stuff gets on the board and then what's on the board gets turned into dialogue on the screen. And you know, that is uh a war of all against all or can be. This was very well run. There were different types of rooms. There were story rooms, there were rewrite rooms or punch up rooms and it was brutally difficult, but it was extraordinarily well run, as I said. And uh that was not allowed, and for good reason. It was uh, not, not that it wasn't every slightly acrimonious, but uh, I was one of the, you know, I was very low down, but I, I was just thrilled to be there. So I, I wouldn't, might not have even noticed that. But the general thrust of what you're saying is correct, which is that normally one agitates for one's ideas to be included in a sitcom that one works on. In this case, I made an effort to try and stop something that I was connected with from being approved to be shot and aired. That doesn't happen a lot.
1: When you did pitch an idea, or when anyone pitched an idea on that show, was it just to Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David,
0: or was it to both of them and and other? When I was there, Larry David left the show after season seven. My freelance was season eight, and then I was there full time season nine. When you pitched ideas, I think actually it, it was when any individual writer wanted to come in and throw ideas around. It was Jerry, and it was the top producers. It was Jeff Schaefer, Alec Berg, Dave Mandel, and I think possibly Spike Ferencett Andy Robin. No, it was actually even smaller than that. And it was generally Jerry with, you know, input from the others who would say, yes, that idea, that idea, not that, 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 that. Take those three, find a fourth, come back with a beat sheet showing me, you know, how each of them begins and ends. And Then once that's approved, go and knit them together in a series of scenes such that you have an A, B, C, and D story, you know, weaving together and coming together pleasingly at the end. So, no, it wasn't everybody. When we had a script that needed to be made a lot funnier quickly, then the entire, uh, we had, I think the writing staff was maybe 11 strong total. I could easily find out, but I'm too lazy. Uh, I have a phone right here. I could IMDB and just look, count the names. Uh, I mean, I, I should know this. And then we would just pitch on jokes to beat jokes that were in the script. You know, additional stuff, but the uh, pitching ideas that would then be turned into an outline and then turned into a script, that was, I think, yeah, Jerry, Jeff, Alec, and Dave primarily. And they were the ones who would say, go off, okay, those are good, go do something with that. Or no, none of that works, go figure out something else.
1: How would they tie together? I mean, I just rewatched the episode in prep for this. And it's amazing how, like you were saying, there are four or five different storylines. There's the H&H Bagel Strike, which I love, but they all tie together. So how do they go from that point of, you know, these different writers writing their bits to making them all weave together?
0: Uh, the rewrite process was something that everyone had input into on, on all scripts. I don't think the show invented it. It perhaps did it better than others. But bringing everything to a satisfying and ridiculous point of convergence, yeah, that happened largely through just a lot of sweaty people with corrected vision sitting in a room and doing this for hours and hours and hours, trying to come up with possibility after possibility that didn't work until finally you found one that did. It was just people breaking and re-breaking the story until it knit together with the other stories. There was no magic to it. And there wasn't like a special team of black ops mercs who came in and then made the stories knit together. It was just something that you did. You tried when you were boarding your own story for your own episode to make everything come together by the end. It It would never work because it required jerry and jeff and alec and dave to use their three-dimensional ten-dimensional chest thinking to be able to move the pieces around satisfyingly i.e the everything coming together at Festivus dinner i think that was jerry's idea in retrospect it seems if you're going to do a show with that and it's eminently logical it, it did not occur to me one bit maybe because the, my mind recoils from those dinners but <laughs> there was no magic to it it was just unbelievably hard work and everyone there was super disciplined and jerry set a hell of an example that I, I have been quoted on this before but I was just very impressed that he doesn't need to prove anything. He's the biggest show in the world, but he's still showing up at 8:45 a.m. on a Sunday for a 9 a.m. rewrite before everyone else. So that sort of work ethic, setting that example that Jeff and Alec and Dave also did, it just everyone just worked really hard and was. I was lucky to work with some super talented people who elevated this grotesque, borderline child endangerment into something that America could laugh at.
1: Working on a show like that, is it like a nine to five thing? Is it five days a week? Like, what was your life like at the time?
0: I was living with my now wife, then girlfriend. I think the hours initially, you know, the very beginning were more like 10 to seven. But then when we hit production, I remember, I think Jeff said, don't make any plans for the weekend. Someone said, what weekend? He said, all of them. Because making that show, keeping that show at a level that approximated the quality of the years before without Larry David meant that everyone had to be on their game all the time. It was, it obviously was a fucking huge honor to work there and no one wanted to, you know, drop the ball. So I don't recall a lot of, uh, it was unbelievably fun. It was the most fun uh, perhaps I've ever had. It was also We were working hard all the time. I mean, we loved it. The number of just possible jokes, stories, beats, that were considered and discarded, with, you know, was a hundred to one, if not more, as it should be when you're trying to create something that lasts. So, is that a rough answer to what you asked? Yeah, totally. I get it. it's interesting. Cause I think
1: everyone pictures writing for a show must just be all fun and games, but it sounds like it's also
0: hard work and a lot of hours. Yeah, no. Look, it beats actual work. I've been incredibly lucky to work in this industry doing this, but yeah, no, it's fun, but it's not fun in games. It's fun and you know you're shooting till. 3 a.m. and you've let the audience go and you're still trying to you're rewriting a scene on the floor while the actors stand around and everyone's exhausted and that was you know Sunfield was a multicam with a lot of outside shoot days that were then edited in so it was a, in theory maybe a hybrid I don't know what you call it today but it's just as hard in a different way on the streaming half hours of the cable half hours and the streaming half hours I've been working on for the last ten years or so things like Veep and Silicon Valley where you know there was season one of Silicon Valley this is very common, you know, to get what we wanted, a party scene at night, we had to shoot from, I think it was 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. on a mountain, you know, and it was freezing. (laughs) uh, It's work, it's a good living, but uh, it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination. It just occurred
1: to me now, uh, you know, one of the plot lines in the Pestivist episode is George is reluctant to tell his boss about Pestivist, but he just has to, to get himself out of a bind was that meta? Was that because you were reluctant to tell your
0: uh, head writers about Festivus and let it be worked into the show? I don't think so. I think that was more that Jeff and Alec were really mad that Castle Rock Communications gave as a holiday present a, a card that says a donation you in your name. I believe the point in the show was how do you know that? And be even if it is, what kind of fucking present is and that? Castle Rock's their production company, right? Yeah, right, right, right. So that story was played out with George resenting that and then inventing the human fund. And then once called on that, this was an example of one of those beats tying things together. I think it was Alec who said, okay, let's let him fall back on Festus. That actually led to that plot, you know, putting its tentacle through the rest of the show so that it couldn't be edited out. Because to get out of a lie, he, he invokes this childhood shame that he's been rejecting up to this point that inexorably draws everyone to this ridiculous dinner. So no, that wasn't a comment on my uncomfortableness with the original holiday. That was a imaginative leap made by Alec Berg that helped the structure of that episode a great deal. So you're writing
1: this episode and and you see it's going to go into production and it's probably not going to make it off the edit floor. Well, I I hoped, but
0: I kind of knew. That's deep down.
1: Too good. You can't kill it. It's like, you know. So at what point do you tell your father that this is making an end or, or did he find
0: out when it aired? In somewhere in the middle, like I certainly didn't tell him when it was starting up, but I didn't tell him right before it happened. There's a great deal of lead time between writing the show and when it actually airs. I told him maybe a month and a half before it was going to air, and I made sure to do it over the phone. I mean, it was easy because he was in New York and I was in Los Angeles. And at first, he was sort of outraged and thought he was being made fun of. And then he got more and more into it after it aired. and, And when people started, you know, over the years talking about it more, you know, he got extremely pleased with himself and thought that this retroactively justified everything he'd ever done. Yeah, I guess in
1: some ways, right, like you were saying, his aim was to invent a holiday and he did, right? And what bigger holiday has been invented in the last few hundred years? Most other ones were started
0: a lot earlier. Again, I'm not sure that it deserves to be put on the level of, you know, most of the, the holidays you're talking about, but you have a point, I guess. What do you think it was?
1: Like I looked up in, in Muckrack, our software, it can tell us how many media mentions there were. So just in All the right. last 12 months, there were over 3,000 articles that mentioned Festivus. And you know, here we are decades later. What do you think it was that made the staying power so strong and like you mentioned, uh, compared to even other
0: great Seinfeld episodes? I have no idea. I think this more than anything is proof that we are in fact living in a simulation. Because it's preposterous to think that this could actually happen in a real world. So, by definition, we must not be living in a real world. So, this proves (laughs) what Elon Musk has been saying. I honestly don't know. I think it, the show itself, you know, was a cultural landmark. And this had the virtue of, you know, being carried as a payload by that missile. So, a lot of people saw it at the time, I guess, before Chris it was, you know, fake holidays, sort of a novel idea, new holiday, sort of a novel idea. In terms of why it stayed, why it might spring to the tongue more than, say, the uh, the Merv Griffin day episode, which I that Bruce Eric Kaplan wrote, that I think was much better. I don't know. I love that one. I honestly don't know. It struck a chord. I'm not happy it did, but apparently people, different people find different things in it, and it's an open source holiday. It, it technically the rights to the holiday are owned by Castle Rock Communications. So anytime someone suggests that I start a foundation or something, I'm just like, well. I have an excuse, which is that I technically don't own it anymore, which is a great relief to me because that was a long time ago. And it's nice that people still, it's nice and weird that some people seem to still celebrate it, be interested in it, what have you. But it has never stopped being a source of confusion why it was anything more than a passing reference in a, forget, a largely forgettable episode. I mean, the, the other plots were all better. The human fung plot that Jeff and Alec came up with was better. Dave Mandel's, uh, I think it was his pitch, the H&H Bagel strike plot. I used to live around the corner from H&H Bagels on the Upper West Side a million years ago. The two-phase plot that I pitched, I was also better, although we had troubleshooting it. A lot of it, actually, I think, is Jerry Stiller, because he was just so good. And the the way Jerry Stiller and uh, Michael Richards and Jason Alexander just played that, they were just so fun. My dad was, you could argue, sort of like an Irish Frank Costanza with a PhD and a drinking problem. So it was a natural fit. They just sold the hell out of it. I would say the performance was a great part of it. That scene in the diner where he's waving the, the tape recorder and George actually runs away, that, I mean, that's a great scene. They elevated the original material. And by the original material, I mean that portion of my life. Yeah, Jerry Stiller was just... Uh, oh, he was the best. Yeah. Did he and your father ever have a chance to meet? You know, I don't remember. But like my, my mom and dad, they were both alive at that point. My uh, dad visited the set like twice, and Jerry was interested in just sizing him up. I believe he said... Okay, now I see it, but uh, I think I introduced my dad to Jerry Stiller, but when I would have done that, it would have been before the episode aired, so it they would never have been able to discuss Jerry's portrayal of my late father, because it hadn't been aired yet? It hadn't even been edited yet. It might not have been shot yet because I don't remember exactly when that set visit was.
1: Yeah, I was lucky enough to meet. We had uh, Jerry Stiller and it come oh, wow. um, present at the uh, Shorty Awards one year, and I uh, got a chance to meet them backstage, and both hilarious. What was it like working with Jerry Stiller on set? Well, I mean, he was been a legend so many times over. Was he involved in kind of punching up the show, or just acting out the lines,
0: or uh... all actors? And actors of that quality, if they have a line they want to throw in there, they weren't. This wasn't really the era when actors felt they had to improv a lot of stuff. Like frequently, Michael Richards would come up with a line and throw it in there, and you know, and Julia and Jason and Jerry, they would all come up with stuff. But it wasn't as prevalent as it was today. So it was our job. It wasn't really their job to fix stuff that wasn't working. Often, however, they did our jobs for us as our call and came up with a line that was better than what was there. But no, he didn't punch stuff up. He just did an unbelievably good job at elevating what we wrote and habiting that terrifying, ridiculous character that he made indelible. He was a lovely man. He was wonderful to work with, consummate professional, hilarious, even when he you know, wasn't in character at all. So he's missed. Agreed. Just shifting gears, uh, I have a lot of
1: people who listen to this podcast who are tech entrepreneurs. And of course, we all love Silicon Valley. how do you come to work on Silicon Valley and what's that experience been like?
0: I loved working on Seinfeld. That was a, an honor. The most fun I've ever had in TV was working on Silicon Valley. And that was because Mike Judge created it, and he brought on Alec Berg to run it with him. And Alec brought me on. And I was there from when we reshot the pilot for the first four years of the six-year run. And it was crazy. It was um, early on, Alec thought we needed to... Mike worked in tech, but it's, it's such an unbelievably specific culture and... To lampoon it properly, you actually need a very granular knowledge of the way it works. And it's not like any of the writers were big coders. I mean, Mike can code Unix. He's actually, he actually knows his stuff. But you know, his, his time had been 10 years before or so. So we went up for these research trips. And the first one, I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be a junket. We're up there for a week. HBO is going to pay for restaurants. It's gonna... But no, we would be getting up at like 6 in the morning, getting in a van, hitting like eight tech companies a day with like, you know, half an hour lunch. Every year I took five notebooks worth of notes during that like five days, six days of the research trips. But we met unbelievably interesting people who were very generous with their time and with their anecdotes and got a lot of stories out of the engineers and the VCs that we talked to. Who were some of the companies of the VCs? You remember them? Mark Andreessen. We went to Google, we went to Facebook, Twitter, everywhere you would think. GitHub was really, they gave us more, like, they have the best t-shirts, best swag. (laughs) And people, were, yeah, were were super nice, even before we were a thing. And you go in there,
1: it wasn't just talking to the CEOs, you'd grab an engineer, you'd grab kind of the people. Some places,
0: the CEO wanted to come say hi, not all that many. Roger McNamee was a real friend of the show, brilliant man, and uh, obviously a lot of what he said has come true. And was super giving of his time. And we had some amazing dinners with him and, and some of his friends. And Reed Hoffman was incredibly generous to the show with his time and his ideas. There was a Twitter CEO who came and actually sat in the room as a consultant, like seasons three and four, who was awesome.
1: Oh, that was Dick Costello, right? Yeah, Dick Costello is,
0: is, is hilarious. He's
1: actually the very first guest I ever had on this podcast. Oh, really?
0: He's hilarious. In
1: 2005, before Twitter even existed, he had his first startup feed burner back then.
0: The weird thing is he was used to be I think he used to be a stand up so we had him in the room because of his peerless knowledge of how the town worked and you know anecdotes that we could turn into stories I mean look there's a, almost one for one of like Hollywood weirdnesses and Silicon Valley weirdnesses so a lot of weird shit that happened in Hollywood we were able to just transplant but a lot of the stories came from places like him my point is that we brought him in there because you know, as a consultant, but he was pitching jokes that got in because he was super funny because he was Santa, which was really cool. So there was one woman at Twitter who uh, had been in a startup in Boston. And I think we got something like eight stories over the course of just my four years there out of just her anecdotes. Like the story about like, If it's better to be the only woman at a te- small tech company than one of two because there's this creepy pressure to be friends otherwise. It never occurred to us. She was a goldmine. I can't remember her name. And again, unbelievably pleasant with her time. I, she was at Twitter at the time. She ran a division there. I, I forget which one because I don't. I sort of understood tech for four years while I was on Silicon Valley. And then, you know, like Flowers for Algernon, it, it all sort of receded. And now I I can operate this device here moderately well, but other than that. Okay. So, yeah, Silicon was, so, was was a blast. Got to work with Alec again for the first time since Seinfeld. And he's a genius. And Mike is a genius. And it was just, the cast is amazing. It, it was in just a great great experience i absolutely loved that job and every second i was on that show now that was brutally hard to do though that was maybe the hardest show to write i've ever worked on it was just really it took about three throwouts of the existing build before we got anything to a place where it was actually shootable and frequently we we beat a whole story out that seemed to work and then we realized it wasn't all that interesting we had to compress it into the first third and then you know find logical conclusions for it and it was brutally difficult to write unbelievably satisfying, and the most fun I've had in Hollywood. It's funny, HBO sponsored the Shorty
1: Awards that year. So I got, they invited uh, us over to HBO to watch the pilot, and we had to watch it there because they weren't giving out copies. And I remember I was skeptical going into it because I'd seen a lot of people try to parody the, the tech Silicon Valley culture, and they would always just get so much stuff wrong that as someone who's, who runs a software company, I'd always be like, that's unrelatable. And then I remember watching it. I was like, oh man, this is like
0: so accurate and so incisive that I was blown away. We weren't trying to parody anything. It was satire. It wasn't parody. And I think it was all made possible when Mike and Alec realized what we need to do is write this like a drama with jokes. We need to treat this. There was another show that launched at the same time with a very fine cast, Ed Begley Jr. playing the VC called Betas. And that was Amazon. And that was, I saw it. It was fun. It was sort of slight. It didn't delve all that deeply into the nitty-gritty of. I mean, sure, there were stories indicating that a certain level of research had gone into it, but you know, our VC season one was much more peculiar and was had some of the peculiarities of many names you would know. Whereas uh, Ed Begley Jr., though a magnificent actor, played a creepy rich guy who was very funny, but you know, it could have been a creepy rich guy who was very funny in any number of professions. And the credit goes again to Mike and Alec for just. Drilling down relentlessly on what the real was and the amount of consultants who came in and added that up. There's a guy named Jonathan Doughton, who, who is a consultant on Silicon, and he's done some writing and he started a number of companies. And he was not only a consultant but a liaison to a whole bunch of consultants. And I've never seen a show where that much research was done. It, but it was in order to do what you just said, which is to get it right. Because the more specific you could, you could get it's like that whole ridiculous tabs versus spaces arguments we could do a relationship story in which you know someone who is that invested in you know one side of that could blow up a perfectly good relationship over coding that actually nothing is at stake doing one more rather than the other makes no appreciable difference according to most neutral observers as i understand
1: and yeah, right after that episode came out i was talking with my co-founder and CTO and he was telling me how passionate he was about which everybody uses and how he, he would
0: have tolerated somebody else on the team using the other. Yeah. And we didn't. The thing with that one is that, as I recall, none of us bought it. We were like, people are fucking with us. No, this is, can't be real. But no, people with advanced degrees with you know, ridiculously high IQs who've accomplished amazing things in business and computing got all bent out of shape about it to an irrational degree. And smart people behaving irrationally is, is a lot of comedy in
1: that. And going up, you know, to me, in a way, I always thought Silicon Valley was like, kind of the perfect follow on show to Entourage, where Entourage kind of nailed the LA culture. And then I mean, that as a compliment, in the sense that it kind of not only was a comedy, but kind of captures a business that Entourage gave you kind of a look at what, how Hollywood worked. I mean, I never worked in Hollywood, so I can't tell how accurate it is.
0: I think it may have captured a very small slice of how one part of Hollywood works. But most people's experience of Hollywood is more gritty and peculiar and less glamorous. So although that was actually a principle that I think Alec enumerated early on, which is we we don't want to become entourage. And not out of shitting on the show, but initially there was some question as to when do the guys become billionaires? and. Alec quickly realized the longer we can keep them from getting too successful, I mean, at the time, there were, you know, decacorns popping up everywhere. It wouldn't have been considered unlikely that we could have the the guys suddenly sell their company for, or be, you know, a $10 billion company all of a sudden and, and suddenly have everything they ever wanted. But it's hard to keep them sympathetic when they're, you know, super successful, given that we have to also have them being sitcom characters, meaning, you know, dumb and, Intermittently uh, offensive and dripping over their own feet, and so on. So, we followed the paradigm of some companies that just kept, you know, having to reinvent themselves, and it was more interesting. And I think after I left, it was handled very well. The way that they got a certain amount of success, but hamstrung themselves by spending their funding in the wrong places, and they and, and the, I thought they they landed the plane very well in the final season. I was not part of it, but I really enjoyed watching it. But that was a big problem. Was when do you? Let them be successful, because there's more stakes, there's more drama, there's more tension, there's more human interest, in if the company has an existential crisis every episode, that it may not exist in the next episode. And you know, that's not really something that's likely to, to happen to Twitter like tomorrow. They'll probably soldier on another day, no matter what happens to them. So realizing that we had to, you know, maximize the amount of hurdles that the business had to face was an important realization. What was your
1: biggest takeaways from visiting Silicon Valley and meeting all these people who worked in tech? You know, what were your surprises about that culture? Or what stuck with you? What
0: stuck with me was thinking, you know, back in eighth grade when two geeky friends of mine, one of them said, Hey, uh, me and some friends are going to take apart a Commodore 64. And uh, I think that guy is now like close to a billionaire. And another one said, "Hey, we're going to go play D and D in my brother's basement where he lives." I should have gone with the Commodore guys, <laughs> probably, <laughs> instead of the D and D guys. Not that they're mutually exclusive. It was uh, really interesting. It was a very specific. And it's changed a bit since 2013 when we started doing that show. But it, it was just a very interesting subculture that you had to learn the rules of in order not only to write the show, but also to navigate the actual valley to be able to glean what we needed to know to write the show. It was sort of like, I don't know, being in a zoo where the animals weren't necessarily going to bite you, but uh, you didn't want to annoy them either in case they, I don't know, hacked you or something. I don't know. I, I'm trying to remember. Uh, we were fascinated by it. We were you know really grateful that everyone was so receptive because even before it Aired and people sort of liked the first season. People were very flattered about, and they were rightly saying, "Look, this is a huge industry. This is one of the biggest chunks of the American economy, and there's not really been a show about it." So, it, it, yeah, you goddamn right, you should do a show about us. And they were right. So people were really, you know, enthused. Only rarely was someone like, "You better not make fun of us." Mostly, people were stoked that we were there when we went to the TechCrunch Disrupt in 2013, and Mike Judge photobombed Zuckerberg while he was. Picking his nose and checking his phone, it was just great. People were were really cool, but at the same time, it was odd. Ah, their concept of a what a party was was you know not a holiday party. It was a brightly lit bar with people standing in small pods, you know, discussing the latest dongle issued for the iPhone. You know, and again, these are human beings. They had other concerns, but it it just it, it was a bit of a culture shock given the sort of just repulsive degeneracy that I at the time I would be finding if I ventured into a Hollywood party, which I tried to do as little as possible, as opposed to these very wholesome but peculiar get-togethers you know, in, in these unbelievably luxurious blonde wood lined cubicle spaces filled with unbelievably fancy bottles of wine. It also struck me just how much more intellectually rigorous, the, I mean, the level of... It was very intimidating to talk because in Hollywood, there are some unbelievably talented people, but they're not necessarily... All MIT mathematicians, you know what I mean? Silicon Valley, there's a higher percentage of that. So it was intellectually intimidating. It was, at the time, thinking, well, these guys are actually changing the world. And this is before, of course, we realized that they weren't making the world a better place. They were breaking democracy and destroying the world, or some of them were. So it was uh, humbling, and it was mostly just really cool. Do you keep in touch with anyone from there? Do you have any uh, Silicon Valley? uh, You mean people who I met like doing research and stuff? Yeah, exactly. I'm not not good with keeping in touch with people. I'm, I'm a comedy writer. The way you make a comedy writer is you take a kid and you fuck him up just enough so he's almost a serial killer, then you pull your punch a little bit. So I'm not necessarily good with maintaining lines of communication with other humans. So no, I don't. I met some super nice people there. There was a woman uh, from Facebook who used to come down you know, on her own dime, on her own time, and help us out on the set with stuff. And she could do unbelievable. It was like she was magic. The things that she could do with a keyboard were like, it was like William Gibson. It was nuts. But no, I, I should. I should. I Basically, I, I only know my family and you. <laughs> that's, that's my social circle. So no, I mean, I, I keep in touch with the, the people from the show, that I, the writers and people who worked on the show to some extent. But in terms of, you Know people from the valley who worked in tech, they probably have better things to do. They, they're making tech, they're actually making like robots and shit. they don't want to, they don't need to talk to me. You know, they're trying to make a self driving car that won't accidentally murder people. They have better, they have more important things to do.
1: We'll bring it a full circle to what created the mind of a comedy writer. I guess it all goes back to Festivus. Mm, Alan arguably. Salkin described it as uh, the perfect secular theme for an all inclusive December gathering, and I actually. So I started a Festus Party the past few years just because uh, I'm Jewish, I have lots of friends who are Christian and other religions and felt it'd be a great way to get people together. What's your thought on people today who are doing Festus Parties or do you think it's advisable? Do you think
0: it's an awful idea? What are your thoughts on where this legacy is going? I would say given where it started, by turning it into something celebratory and inclusive and you know, letting a lot of air in, it's... Uh, perhaps washing away the stain of, of that mid seventies peculiarity and, uh, unfortunate childhood memories. So, you know what, I'm glad because at some point that amount of that critical mass of experiences tied to, you know, parties people have thrown because they like the show will erase the uh, where it came from, which will not be a bad thing. We all have your official blessing for celebrating Festivus now. More than that. There's, there's a, I mean, I've said this before. There's apparently a business in like Wisconsin where somebody is actually making a living. We're part, you know, partly like, selling Festivus poles. Good for him. That's fantastic. I've been in Jerry's, did a Festivus flavor of ice cream uh, like a few years ago, maybe more than a few years ago. That's great. It's uh, open source. Anyone can do anything with it. I mean, other than, you know, Castle Rock technically owns the name and could theoretically sue everyone involved, but I doubt that will happen. So yeah, no, have at it. Uh, More power to you. I'm glad, let me put it this way. I'm glad that some people now are going to festive parties and having a good time. That's a good thing. (laughs) Just step in the right direction. Great. Well, Dan, thank you so much for telling
1: this story. We'll make a uh, great donation in your name as a thank you. And I hope you have a wonderful holiday season and Festivus yourself. Thank you. Right back at you. This show is a real blast. I feel like I cheated a bit. Of course, Dan's not an entrepreneur himself, but I thought the story was so good. And to hear how his father is just able to make up a whole holiday and kind of create his own reality with his family. It's very entrepreneurial. I mean, in a way, all of us entrepreneurs are just making up our own reality and hoping it can work. It was also fun to hear about the research process of Silicon Valley. One of the consultants on that show, Dick Costolo, who for many years was the CEO of Twitter, the CEO who took Twitter public, was actually my very first guest on Venture Voice when I launched it in 2005. Dick was the CEO of a company called FeedBurner, an RSS analytics company. And I remember getting ready for that interview thinking, this is going to be a really hard one to pull off because the CEO of an RSS analytics company is probably really boring. Little did I know that Dick Costello used to be an improv comic studied with Chicago City Limits and just so weird and full circle that he ended up then working on Silicon Valley. And here I am interviewing one of the writers of Silicon Valley by chance, all because I was on a quest to learn more about Festivus. So you never know where your entrepreneurial journey will take you. Thanks for listening. Uh, hit me up on social. I'm just at Gregory on Twitter or on Instagram. And also, please help people find out about this show. Uh, just write a review. Go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Give it five stars. Tell me why you love this show. Tweet about it. Share it on social. And uh, let's help spread more of the festivist joy. Until next time, I'm Greg Gallant with Venture Voice.